Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Perlin, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in historic downtown Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, we have a great show coming up today. Uh, I'll be talking with John Murad, the uh, chief of uh, police in Burlington. Uh, he's a Burlington native, uh, went away for school a bit, uh, worked elsewhere, and he's back and uh, doing a great job in Burlington. I look forward to talking with him. Uh, later in the show, Tyler Austin Whitley. He's the manager of Kilcare State Park in St. Albans. He's a North Carolina, uh, originally from North Carolina and, uh, is up here in Vermont. And we want to, we'll talk a little bit about park service and parks in Vermont and also about being a young, a young man coming to Vermont and what the appeal is. And, you know, can, can you find housing? You know, what's the entertainment world? Uh, all, all of the things that attract young people. We want to, we want to hear from Tyler about that. I had a, um, a good weekend. I hope you had a good weekend too and that you're uh, starting your Monday well. I like doing uh, Vermont Viewpoint on Mondays because it sort of gets the week going. Uh, I was talking with the, the chief uh, before we got on air this morning. We, with our sheep, uh, with all the rain that's been in Vermont, we've had uh, some hoof problems. And yesterday when we were bringing my daughter and I bringing them in from the pasture, one was limping quite a bit, so I wanted to look at her and thought we could clip her hooves a bit. And when you're going to grab a sheep to do anything, you have to get them the very first time. And uh, I sort of got a grip, but not quite, so I had to go full body tackle. And uh, we both went to the ground. And uh, then, of course, it's all out uh, <laughs> WrestleMania. And uh, finally flipped her on her back and uh, we got the hooves taken care of so all's well that ends well um, maybe this sounds a little bit like policing at times chief uh, welcome to the show thank you so much for having me brad really yeah glad it's to be here. and thanks for i know how busy you are thanks for coming to to waterbury it's great having you in studio it was a great excuse to drive down to this beautiful place perfect uh so i'm here with john murad he's the uh, chief of police uh in burlington vermont and you're also a Burlington boy, right? I was born in Burlington back when uh, the University of Vermont Medical Center was still called Mary Fletcher. Uh, my parents both taught at the university. My father for 35 years. He was a professor of Spanish. My mom was a lecturer in the Spanish department. I grew up out in Underhill and went to Mount Mansfield Union, class in 91. Uh, not to date myself, but I guess I just did. Um, <laughs> but I did. Burlington was a place where I went, uh, whether it was, you know, Merrill's or the Roxy or whether it was the Flint or whether it was just Church Street. Uh, it is definitely a place that I think of as home and is now actually my home. I live in the new north end of Burlington with my wife, Vonnie, and my two children, MacArthur and Katie, uh, and uh, love being part of that community. So you can come home again. Is <laughs> That really is the, the crux of my journey over the past five years. Yeah, yeah. And what was Burlington like? Uh, what What are some of the highlights when you were a kid? Or 
Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, it was just uh, – it was the big city to me to be uh, in Underhill. And, and we had relatives in – my mom's Cuban uh, and uh, a lot of relatives in New York City, uh, a lot of time that we spent in New York City, time we spent in San Juan, Puerto Rico too because that's where most of them had relocated uh, from Cuba. So it wasn't like I didn't have experience with other places, but Burlington was still where it was at. It's where we went for uh, – once I could drive, it's where we went on dates uh, when we – had evenings out, that was where you went. Uh, and whether it was, you know, places that had been there forever, like Lunigs or Sweetwaters, gone now, um, or, or Carbers, also gone now. I mean, a lot of places that I remember growing up that were just a part of, of our life. Yeah, it's remarkable. Chris, um, we've been Bove eaters for yeah. since I was two years old. Sure. In the institution and, and Al's French fries too. They were sort of the two go tos. And, a and W was on Church Street yep. in the old days, and uh, was Church Street one way? Church Street was so Church Street uh, was was rehabbed in its uh, as a brick pedestrian thoroughfare in the early '80s or mid '80s. So that was the heart of my childhood um, when I was in you know middle school, early high school, uh, and I definitely remember that change and also being able to go down there and sort of all these shops and the things that happened on a pedestrian thoroughfare. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Um and interesting the uh the police station is located right on Battery Park essentially, mm-hmm. which um I remember my dad driving around and parking there sure. when I was a kid and yeah. Well, that change actually happened uh, in the 90s. Uh, Ernie Pomerleau bought that facility for the police department when they were looking for a new facility. Um, it used to be – it had been a gla- – excuse me, a paint store. It had been an auto body shop, an auto store. Um, prior to that, the police station was on South Winooski where City Market essentially currently is. Uh, and then you know, prior to that, I think it was actually on, on Church Street you know, a century ago. Um, but that actually that, – that change to one North Avenue where it currently is happened after I had left Vermont. Mm-hmm. And that's a good location now for you. It is. It, it's, a, it's a location that gives us easy access to various parts of the city. Um, and, of course, the largesse of the Pomerleau family can't be uh, underestimated in, in giving something like that. Uh, that said, you know, there's always there's changes that, that we'd love to make. And, and one great thing about the police department right now is that we are trying to regrow. And we're growing in ways that aren't just about getting back to where we were, but actually changing some of the ratios of our sworn employees who are police officers and can arrest people uh, to our non-sworn employees, our professional employees, which include uh, in-house social workers called community support liaisons, include unarmed officers called community service officers who can issue tickets but don't carry firearms or make arrests. Uh, And the changing ratio of those professional employees to sworn employees means we've got some work to do inside the building in order to sort of change our configuration a little bit. So there's changes going on. Yeah. No, I imagine. And this isn't just in Burlington. This is sort of a trend, right? That- yeah, no, I think that the, I think around the country we're seeing these kinds of changes. I think Burlington's at the forefront of them. Right. Um, Burlington is, uh, if not unique, it occupies a very small part uh, in the country of departments that actually got a lot smaller 
uh, in the the moment that that sort of was called the defund moment. Um, that's not what really happened in Burlington per se. Our uh, city council chose to reduce the police department by attrition, not through layoffs. But officers left nonetheless, um, and they left in droves. Uh, we went from being an agency authorized with 105 and, and routinely having about 97 or 98 police officers to being an agency that was only authorized for 74, and we fell well below that floor. Uh, we have been reauthorized after some uh, discussions at the city council level to have an authorized headcount of 87 sworn police officers, but we're currently at 67, and we're working hard to rebuild. Uh, among those 67, of course, some of them are at the police academy, some of them are on field training, and we don't consider them effective. We, we really only have about 58 effective officers to police the city, which is totally inadequate. What we've done instead is rebuild these other kinds of resources including these CSLs, the social workers, including the CSOs, these uh, service officers. Yes, I think other departments around the country are, are thinking about some of this stuff, experimenting with it. I don't think anybody's doing it at the per capita scale that Burlington is. Mm. Um, we'll be presenting at the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference in San Diego in October about our CSL program. So I'm pretty proud uh, of the work that we're doing in that front. It definitely, uh, and I've seen a little bit of it as well, and it's incredibly impressive, I must say. We're talking this morning with John Murad. He's the uh, chief of police in Burlington, Vermont, uh, Burlington native, born as I was in Mary Fletcher Hospital. We used to slide on Mary Fletcher Hill. I always thought that was a brilliant marketing thing by a hospital to put a sliding hill by our highway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was actually, there used to even be a little ski area in the woods behind, uh, sort of on the other side of East Avenue from Mary Fletcher. It was a, a very rudimentary ski hill that, that was, I believe, operated by UVM. But. Yeah, yeah, and a ski jump, too, I think, over there. Um, so you were over in Underhill, uh, went to the schools over there, elementary yeah. and high school. Um, who were the role models? Uh, we're going to get to sort of your out-of-state um, college career um, later in the show, but who were the early role models who were um, forming you uh, to where you are today? Oh, that's a terrific question. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, obviously my parents, huge influences on my life. My, my father, Tim Murad, as I said, a, a professor of Spanish at UVM. My mom, Joanne Murad, who was a lecturer at UVM but also taught High school students did a lot of volunteering, ran our, our honor society when I was in high school, um, just both tremendously involved in, in my life and, and people to whom I really looked up. Um, but also some great teachers. One in particular, uh, you know, uh, Patty Brewer was both a neighbor right down the road on, on Poker Hill Road in Underhill and also uh, a teacher, a professor, excuse me, uh, she taught history and social studies um, and the ability to sort of see the world. This was a, you know, a small rural high school, MMU at the time. We had a lot of FFA. We had a lot of, uh, still farms and loggers even in Underhill. Uh, and yet we had courses on Russia and on the Middle East and wow. on China. Um, and these were spurred by her interests and her travels and her life experiences. And, and that was such a, a really wonderful thing. I'm glad to say, you know, my son is now in the high school at BHS. Um, and uh, there, too, there are a lot of just amazing people who dedicate their lives to teaching and are able to, to really find something in young people to say, this is what you can, can be spurred by and then in, contribute to the world, too. 
Yeah. So you had um, the acad- academia background with your parents, yeah. right? Were you the um, a, a, a backtrack on this? I was. A, there were two students models that I know of. One is the the one who sits in the front and raises their hand, and the other is me looking out the window and saying, "Oh, look! There goes a cardinal flying by." <laughs> I raised my hand a lot. I was the. I definitely was a participatory person in social studies in English. Um, not so much in math, right? My brother's a neurosurgeon down in Florida. He was the math whiz uh, and, and got all that kind of science and math skill. Um, but I had great teachers. Uh, you know, um, Errol Medler was a teacher. Uh, Bob Slayton, who, who recently passed away, was a Latin teacher. Uh, just it was a great place to grow up and a great time to grow up, it felt, right? Uh, it, it feels in many ways that, that – uh, growing up in Underhill uh, in the late 80s and, and very early 90s was uh, in some ways, you know, a decade or two decades back in certain ways. And yet it had all these other things that were really amazing about it, too. You were in the sort of the shadow of Underhill State Park in Mount Mansfield. Yeah. Were, you, were you a hiker? Yes. Uh, my, my son and I actually, uh, my son MacArthur and I did the long trail together over the course of 10 years, starting when he was five and finishing last summer uh, after 10 years of section hiking. Um, so, yes, I do. I like hiking very much. Uh, and when I was, when, I mean, Underhill Central School used to take the kids up Mount Mansfield along the, the Sunset Ridge Trail or the Laura Cowles Trail if you're yeah. adventurous. Uh, but I can't imagine the logistics of taking, you know, 40 uh, fourth graders and third graders and second graders up a mountain like that. But they did it. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Sunset Ridge Trail is one of my favorite trails in Vermont. It's yeah. just spectacular the way it opens up so quickly. Yep. Um, was skiing part of your youth? I grew up skiing first at uh, a place that doesn't exist anymore, the Underhill Ski Bowl, yeah. um, and then at Cochran's for a couple seasons, but then moved very quickly to uh, Smuggler's Notch, where I was on the ski team and raced, uh, did junior ones and twos, uh, really, really enjoyed being part of the, the Smuggler's Notch Ski Club. Yeah. Um, and I was a ski instructor in my last year, my last two years of high school. You got all the Vermont under your belt, uh, maple syrup too, I imagine. Yeah, my, my, uh, there's some sugar bush on my parents' property out in Underhill that gets sugared and we get a, we get a bottle or two out of it. I have such a fond memory of, uh, the Underhill ski bowl. It was amazing. Yeah. It would, it had a rope toe, of course, and, you would burn through your gloves right in, in an hour. <laughs> you had to get those leather covers on your gloves. <laughs> right. I think we were, we, I don't know if there was duct tape in those days, but we, <laughs> we had some, some poverty, uh, patching going on <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in our household. Uh, we're talking with Chief John Murad of, uh, Burlington, Chief of Police, uh, grew up, uh, in the Burlington area and in Underhill and in Burlington area. And, uh, if you want to join the call, please give us a call at 802-244-1777. Uh, we, we welcome your call. Um, so getting, uh, went to high school in, at MMU. Yeah. And then, uh, set your sights, um, pretty big, right? Yeah, uh, so thanks in part to, you know, teachers like Patty Brewer, uh, I was encouraged to, to reach far, and my parents definitely encouraged that. They, they actually wouldn't let me go to UVM, where, where I would have gone for free with them. They wanted me to do something different. Um, I ended up going to Harvard University, uh, or, or Harvard College, uh, for college. That's where I met Vonnie, my wife. 
Um, that was by far the best thing I took out of Harvard, uh, was Vani. But, um, that's, I'm being facetious. It was an amazing place and, uh, tremendous people. Uh, not just the professors that you get to meet or the classes that you get to take, but the folks who are in those classes with you, the people that you meet doing, I did a lot of theater. So the folks I met doing theater, uh, the folks that I, I met, um, you know, in the dorms, uh, just, a really amazing place to be, and I am grateful for having had that experience. Yeah, uh, we'll be talking more about that and uh, some amazing things you did there. We do have a caller, uh, Jim from Barry. Uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Chief. <clears throat> I wanted to tell you my perspective on something, and then tell uh, tell you a police officer's uh, a friend of mine, police officer's perspective on on um, my. Uh, conclusions on some things, and then get your reaction. The the the, the uh, comment is: I spent twenty five, thirty years in EMS, and I hated doing behavioral emergencies with police officers because we always, number one, the police always thought it was their call, but number two, the um, the police had a totally different approach to it, and that and that is best described in, in what we used to call the Bible back then. It was Emergency Care in the Streets by Dr. Nancy Caroline. She used to talk about the behavioral emergency needs to have control restored to them. And a police officer's approach is to show up and put their arms across their chest and say, get up. Whereas the EMT's approach would be to down on one knee. And, um, and obviously this is a stereotype, but these are the classic differences. Get down on one knee and say, hey, so what's going on today? So anyway, I was telling this to a friend of mine who went through the Massachusetts Police Academy. He's now in Vermont. He's not a police officer anymore. <clears throat> Although he might be available for hire. He flunked the uh, physical. But anyway, um, he was a police officer in Massachusetts and went through the academy. And he, when I was telling him this, he and I are very good friends. And I was telling him that this, and he said, Jim, that's the way they were trained. He said, we were told from the very beginning that every call, the first thing we had to do was establish control. And I said, bingo, that's it. That was the total difference. So I, I guess, so it really comes down to a training thing. If you, if you move the dial on the training and give a couple of more options, um, rather than the one you must establish control, that was really the core of the issue. And when he said that to me, it really it explained a lot to me. So I was just wondering if you could comment on that or whether... I'm on the mark or whether it's old history or, or, or what it is, but this was all kind of a few years back right through the middle of all the controversy. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, Chief. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jim, for that question. Uh, and it is uh, a good one. I think that there have been times where police officers have been trained to establish immediate and total control. I think we still want officers to be able to establish safety. That is why officers are called to a scene, because for whatever reason, other people have decided that they don't feel safe in this moment. And they need that uh, assistance that a police officer can provide in order to create stability, security and safety in that moment. That said, it doesn't mean control. I, I really disdain the notion of, of cross. Crossing one's arms and sort of watching a scene or, or, or giving hard orders to somebody who maybe can't comply. And I don't think that that's what our officers do at all. I do think that, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, police officers are empowered to use force at some point if safety is impinged, if the person uh, meets certain kinds of behavioral thresholds that they're presenting a threat to others. But that's absolutely not the first thing we want an officer to do. Um, 
I think that there are different roles for EMS or for our social workers or our partners like the Howard Center's street outreach team who are also social workers and what police do. There's, there's differences there. But police are social workers as often as they are providers of uh, enforcement. And in, in fact, probably more often uh, they, they function in that kind of role. And when they come to a scene – Compassion has to be the driving factor. I talk about compassion again and again in any communication I have with officers, whether it's at roll calls or in emails or in messages to the department as a whole. Uh, and, and that compassion is what drives the ability to understand what somebody's going through, to, to have empathy for it, and then to be able to address it in a way that is safe for everyone. So, you know, were things different in, in older times or in other departments? I'm sure they may be. I've worked with a lot of different departments uh, as a private consultant. I, I trained in the New York City Police Department and was a New York City Police Department cop for 12 years. Uh, it's not how the NYPD does it. The NYPD has a, a really cutting-edge program around what used to be called emotionally disturbed persons. We don't really use that term as much anymore, but uh, they hire actual actors, out-of-work actors in New York City. So these are pros, some of whom have had lived experience with mental health, and they go through a program of, of teaching officers how to interact with people who are suffering from mental health crises or, as you talked about, you know, behavioral emergencies. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that what you're describing is not really something that is emblematic of Burlington. I don't think that it is. Hmm. Yeah. So you do have... Uh uh, you you talked about being very innovative, and I think you, the department has been very innovative with with uh, the different programs that you have. And one of them is your crisis advocacy intervention program. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you for that chance. Uh, CAPE, or the Crisis uh, Advocacy Intervention Programs, is a, really a, a growing new part of the police department. Um, mayor Moreau Weinberger, who is the mayor up in Burlington, has been incredibly supportive of this agency seeking new ways to serve the community, uh, addressing, for example, the impulses that, that created that uh, diminishment of the police department back in June 2020, when the city council said, in the wake of the pandemic, in the wake of the horrible murder of George Floyd, in the wake of a, of a national cry for uh, police reform uh, along racial justice lines, uh, to they decided the, the the city council in the wake of all that decided to reduce the police department by thirty percent. What were we going to do instead? Because the calls from the public weren't going to change. We were still going to be getting calls from the public at the same volume, and in fact, our volume is up this year uh, compared to the last four years. Um, we wanted to create these new roles. CAPE was a big part of that. The Community Support Liaisons, or CSLs, uh, were born out of my having worked with a woman in the police department named Lacey Smith, who was, at the time, the Community Affairs Liaison. And Lacey was amazing. She still is. She's still with the police department. She is an amazing, amazing woman, provides a terrific service, worked with homelessness, worked with people suffering from substance use disorder, worked with people experiencing chronic mental health conditions that often bleed out into quality of life issues for themselves and for neighbors and the community in general. And I said many times, I want to clone Lacey Smith. And creating the CSLs with the mayor's support um, and, and drive was part of that. So uh, the CSLs are sort of the biggest component of CAPE. 
But CAPE also consists of a victim's advocate, a domestic violence victim's advocate, a domestic violence prevention officer, who is the only sworn officer in CAPE. And we are now building a program called Burlington Cares, which is modeled on a program that got a lot of attention out in Eugene, Oregon, called CAHOOTS, uh, that involves the deployment of a clinical worker, a clinician, and a medical provider to be able to go out in the field and meet people where they are in order to address these kinds of concerns. Really a great model uh, and a building process for you. Yeah, uh, a big regrowth process. I mean, regrowth is the name of the game over the next couple of years with uh, Mayor Weinberger's great support, with the city council's support now. And uh, we have to build up our sworn resources by more than 20 officers over the next several years, three, we hope, four. Yeah. Uh, but also these new resources, too. We're talking with uh, John Murad, uh, Burlington Chief of Police. Uh, there's a thousand things I want to talk about, John, <laughs> but uh, we were just talking about uh, Harbor Hideaway Restaurant where they was – I remember the armor and the knights, and there was a coffin in there and yeah. all of that. And yeah. It was <laughs> old Burlington. Yep. Uh, many, many things that are, uh, aren't are with us anymore, but were part of, uh, of people's experience growing up there. Yeah. So I was in seventh grade. I was at Edmonds, and uh, we went to New York City for a field trip, and I was this little – you know, 80 pound kid and looking up at the buildings and I was scared out of my mind. Yeah. And, uh, you spent a little time there. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I moved to New York City. Um, so after college, I, I went out to Los Angeles and worked in the entertainment industry, uh, and ultimately sort of 9-11 happened and 9-11 woke me up to my desire to, to serve in a different kind of way. I just, I wasn't serving and I, I was living what, what might have been called, you know, philosophically an unexamined life. And I wanted to be more contributory. I moved back to the East Coast, to New York City, uh, in part to be with the woman who's now my wife, um, also in part to find something other than entertainment. I, I looked at journalism for a little bit, and then I ended up joining the NYPD in 2005 uh, and immediately loved it. I really loved that work. I liked the men and women I got to work with. I, I liked the communities I got to serve in the Bronx. Um, I ended up working in, in neighborhoods, uh, both where my, my family had lived. I mentioned that, you know, my mom's Cuban family had lived in Washington Heights on, on Cabrini Drive. Uh, I ended up being a sergeant at one point in the 3-4 precinct and getting to work in those neighborhoods there. Um, I, I lived in the Bronx, uh, but I also worked in the Bronx. I worked in the, the South Bronx and the East Bronx. Um, and uh, was in housing, actually. I was a housing cop, so really only worked in New York City housing authority uh, buildings, what were called NYCHA buildings. Um, and uh, it was uh, a great experience. Uh, cutting your teeth is an understatement, I suppose, in law enforcement. And there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of officers, right? Or, oh, gosh, or uh, thousands. thousands, thousands. So thousands. The, the New York City Police Department has uh, 36,000 officers, uh, and about 52,000 to 55,000 employees. Uh, it too is suffering right now with regard to headcount, uh, challenges. Every department in the country is really. Um, and so I don't know what they are right now, probably 33, but, uh, during most of my tenure, they range 
ranged from 33 to 36. And that's a lot. That's a lot of police officers. My uh, police academy class had 1,800 people in it. Mm. Um, you know, there aren't that many police officers in the entirety of Vermont. And that was just our academy class. So my, my individual company had, had 50. Excuse me. I'm sorry, 40. Had 40. Boy, what I wouldn't give to get 40 police officers into a, a class for another round of Burlington officers. Well, we could definitely use that. We're hoping that you will. Uh, briefly, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. You did a little <laughs> advising. I know Greg Titus was excited yes. about that. Our, our yeah. my producer. Um, yeah, uh, I got to to speak about that a little bit before the show. Uh, so uh, a person that uh, my wife and I went to college with, Dan Gore. Um, was a writer, a uh, comedy writer. He'd written for Parks and Rec, and he was putting together a show along with another producer named Mike Schur, also a college classmate of ours, uh, to be a Barney Miller of the aughts, and they wanted to, to sort of do something funny in policing. Uh, but they didn't know any cops, which is probably not unusual for uh, Harvard graduates, probably don't know a lot of cops one-on-one, and they called me because I was the one they did know. I spent a lot of time talking with them about how detective squads do operate in the NYPD, how things actually work, and they promptly dismissed all of it and took very little. But that was great. (laughs) They would call me and ask me, how would this work if this was going to happen? And I would say, well, this is how it would happen. And they'd say, ah, that's not quite so funny. We're going to do it this way instead. And I'd say, all right. But the one piece that I did contribute um, that I'm really proud of contributing is that, uh, you know, the, the precinct commander, Holt, is a gay man, and they really wanted him to continually face uh, challenges because of his sexual orientation in the department in this modern day. And I said, that's not the NYPD of today. It absolutely would have been many years ago. And they ended up creating a character that certainly had faced those kinds of challenges early in his career. But his sexuality, by the time the story begins in you know, 2014, 2013, whenever the series began, is relatively incidental. Hmm. And I think that that sort of important piece, that this thing, which is, by the way, incidental for all of us, it's a component of all of us, but it's not like we go around worrying about what that is on any given day. Uh, I think that was a piece of why the show was was critically popular at first. I think it contributed to the Golden Globe win. Um, And I am proud to have been uh, an important part in making that one little piece stick to the the way the show was going to be structured. Uh, everything else I had very little to do with, but I still am really, uh, that's a show that I don't mind having people say you were associated with because it was terrific. Yeah. And good for you for leading them, you know, into, into an area that they maybe could have gone a million directions and, uh, wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped, uh, the world so much. And speaking of helping the world and, um, being motivational, you had a little gig, uh, at the Crimson H. Uh, <laughs> yes. You got to do, um, you're not only, um, you've got a couple degrees from Harvard, right? Yes. Uh, so I, I got my undergraduate degree in, uh, in the 90s uh, in English and American literature and language from the college. And then uh, nearly 20 years later, the New York City Police Department sent me back for a one-year master's degree program in public administration. So I got my MPA from the John F. Kennedy School of Government, 
at Harvard. And that year, I also was fortunate enough to be selected to give the graduate oration at uh, graduation. So you have 35,000 people crammed into the center part of Harvard Yard called Tercentary Theater, and you get to give a big speech. There's an undergraduate speaker. There's a Latin speaker. There is the graduate speaker. I was the graduate speaker and uh, got to be there right in front of then Mayor Menino and Oprah Winfrey and the assorted and gathered uh, – prestigious fellows of Harvard University. Uh, it was great. It was really wonderful. Well, it's a great speech. And if you go to YouTube and uh, Harvard uh, speech, John Murad, what struck me, John, um, you talked about uh, uh, John Adams, uh, president of the United States, second president of the United States, and uh, his son, John Quincy Adams, was uh also president of the United States. They were both Harvard grads, uh, along with six others, uh, John Kennedy, Ruth for Hayes, Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, George Bush, Barack Obama, to name as a few, all of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the pressure for greatness was enormous. That was sort of the, the mantra, I guess, of, of John Adams and his admonition yeah. to John Quincy Adams. But you looked at it a little differently, didn't you? Well, I, I guess that what I was trying to do uh, was give the benefit of my, you know, the 20 years that had intervened since when I graduated uh, Harvard um, with those those feelings of expectation, uh, both for myself and, and that maybe were placed on us, um, to where I was by then in 2013 and in a very different place on a road that I had never expected to travel uh, in a profession that wasn't what, again, most Harvard students would go towards. And what I wanted to give was a sense of both reassurance and possibility to those young, bright-eyed, uh, bushy-tailed graduates sitting in Tercentary Theater that you can do whatever you want. And, and the fact of the matter is that we all contribute in one way or another. And I think that trying to figure out how best we can do that for each other is what's most important. And it doesn't mean that you have to go into a service role. You don't have to be a social worker or uh, a cop, although I think those are great jobs, and I wish that more Harvard students would do them. Um, but you can find ways, even in you know your corporate world or in your uh, entrepreneurial world or in medicine or any number of different ways, to give back and to make certain that you are trying to bring others forward with you as you kind of go through life. That was what I hoped the the speech would convey. And uh, and at least insofar as the reaction in Tercentary Theater that day, I think it did its job. It definitely did its job. And, and uh, to quote John from his speech, uh, because he was really talking to the highest level of achievers in academia, uh, but his admonition was success does not mean rising to the top. It means changing the world. And so here you are back in, in Burlington, and, and that's – your philosophy hasn't changed, right? No. I wake up every day trying to change the world just at least a little bit. And I, I think that it's a profession that, that gives itself towards that. I'm hopeful that the men and women I get to work with every day, uh, officers and CSLs and CSOs and dispatchers and records clerks and uh, you know every member of our police department thinks in that same term. The fact of the matter is we all change the world, right? Uh, as I say in that speech, everything ripples. We, we, what we do ripples out and affects other people no matter whether we want it to or not. And we 
try, I hope, to make sure that those effects are good ones, that the ripples that go out are ripples that don't uh, adversely impact others, but affect others in ways that have some sort of cumulative or total positive good. Um, I think that law enforcement done right has that ability. I don't think that you can have a community without public safety. I don't think that you can have a strong neighborhood that doesn't feel safe. And I believe that police are uniquely positioned to contribute to that sense of safety. I think they have to be resourced properly. I think they have to be trained properly. I think they have to be motivated properly. I think they have to have the right kind of uh, philosophy about why they're doing what they do. But when those things are present, police are incredibly important to a community that can then go on and do all the other great things that communities promise us, whether that is issues around art or uh, around, uh, you know, medicine or schools or uh, effective government. All of those things rest on a foundation of public safety, because if you don't have that, then those other functions fall away. And. It's rough out on the street right now, right? Uh, we have an opiate crisis. Oh, uh, we have yes, homelessness. We, we have poverty. I, I did, I want to put a plug in for Lacey Ann as well. Thanks. Lacey Ann Smith, who works with the chief. She is absolutely a remarkable woman who just sees, I mean, she's, she's just seen it great. And, yeah. um, so that part of your team, you know, all of your team, I'm sure, but I, I was really so impressed meeting her. But what about out on the street? You've got this gigantic force. I look at your command staff and all of that. Um, is can you be at the top and and get to the bottom? Do you? <laughs> I certainly try. I mean, it's it's not as gigantic as it ought to be, uh, or as it has been in the past. But my command staff, you know, Deputy Chief Brian Labarge, Deputy Chief Wade Lebrec, these are men who have dedicated, uh, you know, twenty more than twenty years in Wade's part, almost 20 years in Brian's part, to public safety, to this police department, to the city of Burlington. Uh, and I'm, I'm honored to get to work with them. I do think that we have a department that is a, a size that I do know every single member of the department. Um, I can name every single member of the department. I can, uh, you know, I try to connect with every single member of the department, uh, try to make myself available to them, because frankly, I don't do the work. They do the work. They do the work on a day-to-day basis. And they confront the things that are challenging us the most, right? You mentioned it. Uh, substance use disorder uh, is is rampant. Uh, it is worse than it has ever been in our nation's history. The overdose rates, the fatal overdose rates show it. Our overdose rate, not just fatal, but any overdose response, is already higher at this time this year than it was last year. And last year was a record by far, a terrible record, higher than any previous year. And yet we've already eclipsed last year and we're, you know, partway through August. We'd actually eclipsed it partway through July. So that is a challenge that we are dealing with. We are dealing with, you know, an influx of new kinds of drugs into the system that it's the opioid epidemic has transitioned to fentanyl uh there's xylazine in a lot of these they are adulterated in unknown and terrible ways that have horrible effects the people who suffer from this uh it is a disease but it's a disease that you suffer from and suffer is the word if you are in the throes of it uh it is an existence that none of us would wish on anyone And getting people through that is tremendously challenging, particularly when we have decided as a community that enforcement isn't the way to solve this. 
the challenge is also exacerbated by the fact that we have more homeless folks in Burlington than we've ever had to our knowledge. Uh, I believe the number is upwards of 240 or 250. That is a huge number. That is, it's not as bad as a place like San Francisco, for example, um, but it is worse than other major uh, urban areas across the country. And figuring out how to address that and deal with that in a compassionate, humane way is a challenge for all of us. But it is a challenge, first and foremost, perhaps for police officers who encounter both of these uh, these phenomena, uh, substance use disorder and houselessness, more often than almost any other profession. They encounter it in the real time, in the street, and they often enc- encounter it in the context of behaviors that are tremendously problematic and dangerous for the community, and that you have to react to those behaviors even if the behaviors are driven by these other things that aren't law enforcement matters. Houselessness is not a law enforcement issue. Substance use disorder as a medical condition is not a law enforcement issue. But the behaviors that it drives, routine, uh, low-level crime in order to feed a habit such as uh, substance use disorder and buy illegal narcotics, uh, routine acts of disorder and, and sometimes outbursts that present a danger to other people or at the very least make the citizens and we feel very deeply uncomfortable and prevent all of us from using our public spaces equally uh, associated with houselessness, excuse me, houselessness, those are uh, things that are the purview of police officers, those behaviors. And so officers are at the front line confronting this, and none of us have the answers that we want. None of us are, are fully clear on, on what is going to fix this, because frankly, these are problems that on some level have been with us uh, for, for centuries, and we've never fully addressed them, right? They're, they're always going to be with us, but right now they're with us in ways that are more pronounced than they have been. Yeah, and we—it seems we've been—you've—you've um, you've been in the middle of it for a while, but there, there, you have a clear grasp of the fact that there, there is a challenge here, yeah. right? And so, getting more recruitment, getting more uh, Lacey Smith type of people um, yeah. going out with the officers—is that what they do? The the resource people will actually respond with officers. So uh, they don't they don't co-deploy, uh, but they follow up. So a lot of times, officers go to a scene, they establish physical security, they say, "I've done everything I can do here. There is an arrest. There isn't an arrest. Uh, I'm going to be able to take enforcement action or not." But I've made it safe, I've made it secure, but the underlying problems are not problems that I'm equipped to deal with. I'm going to refer this to our community support liaisons. And that was definitely the sort of thinking behind that. You know, Mayor Weinberger is very aware of these challenges. Burlington was leading the way on the opioid epidemic uh, with a system called ComStat, a series of meetings that are monthly and involve lots and lots of different stakeholders. Uh, that was Mayor Weinberger's uh, great creation. And I think that it – I don't think. I know that it basically uh, lost momentum during the pandemic. Uh, we obviously had to turn and fake uh, – excuse me, turn and face and focus on this, this tremendous threat. But as a result, the urgent – crowded out the important. And the important was continuing to stay on top of the opioid epidemic. In the meantime, the opioid epidemic has has 
transitioned. It has it's become something worse. It's metastasized in a way that makes it far more difficult to tackle, even using the techniques that CompStat provided just three or four short years ago. And so what we do going forward definitely is a challenge for us as a city. Uh, the mayor thinks a lot about houselessness, a lot about uh, substance use disorder, um, and a lot about that regrowth that you're talking about. Because at least insofar as our component, the policing component, we need to regrow. And we need to tackle some of the things that I think you're going to talk about with Tyler, you know, from the, the St. Yeah. Albans Parks person. Like, how do you get people to want to come to this community? How do you talk about housing and, and about uh, about entertainment and about the things that, that, that attract young people to a community like this? Because that's part of what I need to be able to articulate in order to get great people up here to become the next generation of great cops. Yeah, um so we're, we want to put a plug out for recruitment. Uh, Burlington, Vermont, John and I are both, Chief, Chief Murad and I are both Burlington boys yep. born. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And, uh, I always look at it as pendulum swing, right? I do. And so y- you're headed in a good direction. You're starting to rebuild. Yep. Um, you're, you're, you were made chief, uh, yes. finally, which was, you know, I think a great thing to do. And, and you want to be here. And, and we're, we'll, we will talk to Tyler about those things. We only have a, about a minute and a half, but I want to give you a quick magic wand. Yeah. What, what, what would you dream about, wish for? Oh, gosh. There's so many things. But, in, you know, in the short term, uh, certainly we, we now offer one of the most competitive salaries for police officers in the state. We start out at $74,000 for a new police officer. It tops out at $100,000. I'd want to keep that going. I'd love to explore, you know, housing for police officers in the city where they work. I would love to explore daycare and other kinds of provisions for that. Uh, additional educational incentives if I had that magic wand and that magic amount of money. But um, really, you know, we've got all these ingredients. We've got these components. Uh, it's been terrific to talk to you at WDEV, and uh, I'm glad you gave me the time, Brad. But I think that there's a lot that we're doing in Burlington that's going in the right direction. I think that pendulum is swinging in the right direction. Uh, but we've got challenges ahead, too, and it's going to take time to work through those. Yeah, well, I really want to thank you, Chief, for coming to Waterbury, being here in studio in person. And, you know, we're all optimistic. Your leadership is there, and uh, you've got a good team around you. You're building it. And, uh, you know, Burlington is a beautiful place. So we really appreciate you being with us this morning. Thank you. It's a place worth serving. Great. This is Brad Furlan, uh, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont, historic Waterbury, Vermont. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. This is Brad Perlin, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here in historic downtown Waterbury, Vermont. We just had a great discussion with uh, Chief John Murad uh, of Burlington. He's an old Burlington boy, uh, Underhill, uh, a lot of Underhill roots, and uh, went on to do some uh, TV uh, advising for a popular series, went to Harvard not once but twice, uh, and gave a commencement speech, which was quite remarkable, and uh, motivational, and it was really good talking with him. 
My next guest is somebody that I I met earlier in the year, uh, and I want to welcome you to the show. It's Tyler uh, Whitley, and he is the manager of Kilcare State Park in St. Albans, Vermont. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great having you. So um, for our listeners, uh, I live uh, fairly close to Kilcare State Park, and my daughter and I, along with having our sheep, we also have two Norwegian elk hounds that we walk and we walked to uh, Kilcare Park, and we got to meet Tyler. And uh, Kilcare Park, for those who haven't been there, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it uh, to begin with. Right. So um, it's one of 54 or so state parks within the system, and it's um, a really kind of unique place. It's a, a day-use park, so there's no camping there. But um, wh- what's so special about it is it serves a um, – very kind of specific park. It serves Burton Island, uh, which is an island like its name, and uh, there's no road that goes to it. So we at Kilcare serve as a ferry service, essentially, to Burton Island, and um, there's no cars at Burton. It's a very quiet, family-friendly place where you see a lot of you know, kids on bikes and people just kind of enjoying the quiet and the atmosphere, and so we serve as this gateway. Um, and not only is it, are we serving that gateway, but we have our own merits as well. Um, it's a historic site. It used to be a boys' camp um, from the um, ni- 1910s, essentially, to the 60s, uh, where there's a lot of history and a lot of people in the area still are very you know close to that. So um, the historic house on property, it's uh, the Rocky Point House, was built in 1870 and was a, a kind of bread and breakfast inn um, for for that time until the location was purchased by the boys' camp, uh, which was located more towards the Georgia shore originally. And um, so to kind of pay honor and homage to to the history of the park, which used to be Camp Kilcare, um, there's a, a museum downstairs that kind of talks about what it was like at the boys' camp, um, some memorials here and there. It's a, it's a really special place, and unlike a lot of other parks, which are big, you know, there's hiking trails at places like Underhill, um, Kilcare doesn't have those facilities, but it's it's quiet, it's it's clean, and it's it's a nice place to bring your family for a picnic or just to read a book and relax. It's all of that, and it um, by the way, it happens to be on a hundred and ten mile lake. <laughs> that, that's also a good picture. It's a good spot to swim. Uh, part of the origin of it too was, um, or what what made it popular for swimming was in the seventies uh, and eighties. Uh, when the water quality towards the Bay Park in St. Albans started uh, reducing, a lot of people started looking at Kilcare uh, to swim at. And, you know, Kilcare was around in the 60s, but again, it was just that ferry service. So it then became so much more when people started swimming there and going there for more recreational purposes. So do Burton State Park, right, Burton Island, is its own state park? Yes. Essentially, and, and you're your own state park, uh Kilcare. Right, right, we are. And um, we also a bit indirectly serve two other state parks. It's right next to uh, Night and Woods Island. Um, and those are really cool, unique parks. They're one of only a handful of uh, state parks that are for remote camping only. Um, and again, these are also islands. So the only way to get to there are boats. So we get a lot of people going to these islands that are kayaking, canoeing over 
Um, it was actually really cool. Uh, um, a few weeks back, we had a big school group, or, or not necessarily a school group, but a um, you know wilderness program where um, it was maybe 30 or so kids took up every single site on Knights Island. And so they all canoed over there. And, I mean, these are like middle school or younger kids, and they got that wilderness experience. There's no electricity, no plumbing. You know, it's roughing it, so to speak. Um, so we, I like to think that Kilcarrigan is this gateway that serves a whole bunch of unique opportunities while also standing on our own as a nice, quiet, relaxing place of serenity and meditation in its own way. Yeah, it's really a... Um I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful spot. And, and I like what you're t- talking about. We, we like to go all the way out to the end. There's a bench that overlooks the lake and there's several benches, of course. And right. Just sitting there. Well, and, and my whole spiel that I guess I give when people are like, what do, what do you have here? Of course, you know, I mentioned the museum, but I say, if you catch the right day, you can go out on this beautiful rocky point and have a view of almost the entire Ad- Adirondack mountain range. Yeah. And, and I, I feel so privileged to call that my home and my park. You know, there's a lot of cool places and a lot of cool views, but you know, there's, there's nothing like sitting on that bench at the point and just reflecting over this you know, hundred mile lake and looking at these islands and seeing sailboats in the distance, all kind of with these cascading mountain ranges across yeah. the way. Well, I was there yesterday. As a matter of fact, some friends came from out of town, and so we met over there, and we did go in. I hadn't really been in the house too much, and and the pictures in there of the old camp and the cabins. There were cabins all over. There were tennis courts. Uh, what a great place to be as a kid. Right. I, I, I almost envy it, and I always joke with my uh, superior. I said, if there's one thing that we should bring back from the old park, let's just bring back the gun range and see how it goes. <laughs> but. Yeah, they had all sorts of things. You can actually, if you um, if you look around hard enough, you can still see the old uh, pitching mound. Okay. There was a, a, a baseball, or yeah, baseball. And field. were these uh, Vermont kids mostly, or was this more uh, national? It, it was definitely a, a, a Vermont program, and while they would uh, bring bring other people in, surely a lot of it was kind of for um, the these. Yeah, kind of the, not the best and the brightest per se, but for those who um, wanted to extend their education and their knowledge, uh, it actually started as a um, scholarly camp hmm. um, and then kind of turned into this more recreational thing. But um, it was very much, I mean, they had a lot of kind of autonomy. Uh, if, you, if you look in the museum and see, see some of the posters, it talks about going to uh, Montreal and, and going to these different mountains. I think they would go to Underhill and, and do Mount Mansfield. And there were different age groups, obviously, but they were very, uh, they had very strict kind of scheduling and programming, but it was all very recreation based, enjoyable, and it still allowed time for boys to be boys, so to say. Yeah, we're talking this morning with, uh, Tyler Whitley. He is the manager of Kilcare State Park in St. Albans and I, I don't know if I heard this from you or I heard it from somebody, but, uh, recently that the boys would actually hike to Mount Mansfield from the park. Right, right, yeah. And, um, I know they also would, uh, sometimes travel places in, in a vehicle, but they would load up a pickup truck, throw all the boys in the back and go where they go. Um, I, I heard a story from someone who, who went to the camp or had, had family related to it and, um, they said the boys would, be canoeing out to the water and sometimes they would just 
you know, let nature take them over, so to speak, and they keep going, keep going, and then the the um, camp counselor sees, oh no, they're going too far, mm. and tr- come back, come back, come back, and um, you know, it really did seem like such a magical place. So I try to kind of, f- while we're not a camp anymore, um, you know, I tr- still want to keep some of that magic of this place where you can just uh, again kill your cares, and that's where the name comes from. Is when the the camp was founded, it was a place to come kill care. Wow. I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. We're talking this morning with uh, Tyler Whitley. He's the manager of Killcare Kill State Park. It's a park that is uh, happens to be near my house. So my daughter and I walk our Norwegian elk hounds uh, over to the park, and I want to put in a plug for Kill Care. It, what, dogs weren't always allowed. It was like Snoopy. No dogs no allowed. allowed. And <laughs> it was funny because dogs were allowed over at Burton Island. And again, we, we run a ferry service over there. So a lot of people would come in past years with their dogs. And, you know, the ferry has a schedule. So it was kind of a, what do you do with your dogs? And um, it was in 2020, I believe, that they kind of lifted that rule. And you can bring your dogs. And as long as they're on a leash under 10 feet, uh, it's a good place to bring them. A lot of people, uh, I see a lot of people with their dogs just kind of doing laps and stuff like that, and especially people in the neighborhood like Brad love to come down and include it as part of their circuit, uh, circuit not only for walking their dogs, but walking themselves. Yeah, it's really, and we we so appreciate that we can go in. And, and I sort of, if I was a test market group, when the park closes, of course, where you're there year-round, People were coming in droves before, you know, after the park is closed with their dogs. Right. So, so we knew there was a market for it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, with, with the state park system, we have our, our peak season, uh, which for us was Memorial Day to Labor Day this year. And that is when it is fully staffed. You know, we charge entry, we close the gate. But after that, the, the literal floodgates open and people come and go as they please. And when I got there in April, uh, to the house originally, I there was this one guy sticks out in my mind. He had three huskies, and he'd drive and stop by the gate and then walk them in, and he wouldn't have them on a leash because there's no one there to enforce that policy. And would throw the frisbee, have a whole bunch of toys, and uh, you know, I'm, I, I'll admit I'm not a dog guy I like my cat, but um, to see these dogs have this this range, this big field where they could just run and kind of be free was was really um, a nice touch, and to know that that is something that we can kind of um, provide for visitors because I know dog parks are not always the most accessible or easy to get to. I know they're, they're kind of few and far between in the area. So to serve as kind of a quasi-dog park is nice. Yes, yeah, it's, it's excellent. And, of course, we always advocate for you You bring bring bags, um, clean up after your dog. It's easy to do, and uh, it keeps in. I'll put a plug in for the park. Uh, Tyler is managing it, but it's never uh, – kill care has never looked better. Um, the and what about that? I mean, your your day starts at uh, oh dark thirty, and <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I'll go over kind of my uh, long shift. There's only two two managers. There's me and my assistant manager, uh, and we have three employees, three attendants. Uh, thankfully, uh, I could not be happier with the team that I have. Um, one of my attendants um, has been there for four years. Um, at, at Killcare, not just in the park system, but at Killcare for four years. So uh, this is my first year there. I worked last year in southern Vermont as an attendant, and one thing led to another, and now I'm in this management position, which was, was uh, shocking and invigorating and exciting. Um, but I understood that 
this lady might know a little bit more than me. So um, one of the one of the first things I had to do was humble myself and say, hey, what do you do here? And so um, there was a lot of learning involved. But but to kind of answer your question, uh, one of my long days, let's say, I'll, again, there's only two of us. So we both get two days off. And on those oh, other ones days off, you, you got to work open to close. And so day starts at, at maybe, you know, 7.50, you want to get the gate open by 8. And I'm thankful because the boat crew does that for me. Mm. They leave um, with the Burton Island crew to get over at 7.45. So while our gate technically opens at 8, it's open well before. Um, but I go and make sure the bathrooms are unlocked and clean. Um, and then I head straight to the office to open that up because our first ferry leaves at 9 and people are going to want to come early to be able to get checked in and, and do this and that. So there's kind of this, you know, while there's a lot to do, um, it's kind of this tricky scenario of, of having to be in this office. So that's when the attendants come in and depending on the day, they'll get there at either 8 or 9. And um, I have the one that's been there for four years, one that's been there for two and one that was at Burton last year. So she was kind of familiar with how we operated. And so they come in, I have uh, a to-do list and they just go to work. Um, and it's at the point where I don't even have to have a to-do list anymore because they're so in tune with the park that they can see and know what to do. Um, lately we have been on an absolute crusade, I'll say against uh, Buckthorn. There's, um, which is an invasive plant to Vermont, um, and it uh, kind of creates a lot of shade uh, on the um, kind of on the lower brush end to where anything on the understory won't be able to grow because it's taking up all the sunlight. And our main road, the road pulling up to Kilcare, which is about maybe a quarter mile long, is chock full of it. Um, so again, my my attendants have been on a crusade, cutting down as much buckthorn as they can in a day. We had. Um, actually a uh, dump truck service come and get up what we've cut through the year between dead branches, dead trees, and, and that buckthorn. They took about five dumpsters full of, of brush from our property. And that's just from one year. Wow. And I uh, witnessed that yesterday. Your uh, attendant was going with a passion and a saw and was taking on limbs and branches that I couldn't believe. So, yeah, there there's been a couple times, I'll admit, where I'm like, maybe that's a bit too ambitious. <laughs> yeah, maintenance team, so maybe, maybe let them handle that one, but knock on wood, no one's been hurt. And, um, there's yeah. nothing like anger and trimming trees to... <laughs> I know, it's really good. I, it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't that, but it, it was really amazing. Right, it's it's therapeutic. It's, yes, it's it is. It's getting, getting a, a lot of, you know, whatever you have out. Um, but, of course, there's a lot of mowing, keeping up with the trash, and just making sure things look nice. I mean, uh, in, my, in my manager training, one of the big things that I kind of took to heart is... Um, we were reviewing all the things you would need to make sure the park has and has done. And there was a station for bathrooms, which you wouldn't think much of. And like when you think park manager or park ranger, what they do, the last thing you think of is going to be bathrooms. But as a guest of the park, if you go into a bathroom and it smells or is gross, you, no one wants that. You're going to have a bad time and it, it's going to dampen the experience. And so one of the big things that stuck with me was keep the bathrooms clean mm -hmm. just keep things clean and so 
my job and and my attendance job is just as much forestry as it is janit like custodial and janitory. And we're very fortunate, you know, our bathrooms are in the house. I, I always joke around saying we have the best bathrooms in the state park system because they're not a moldering privy or a right. porta potty. Um, so we have this opportunity to really make an impression just in terms of our restroom facilities, which seems like such a small thing, but really does make a huge difference in the overall perception of cleanliness. Yeah. Well, it's true in, in service stations and everything. You really, you want good restrooms and you have them there. We witnessed the, you know, the stream of people going in and out yesterday. So it's something obviously that's, you know, a big part of it. Uh, the park. So you've got, um, I mean, you do the, you have to mow the lawns, you have to weed, you have to trim, you have to, you have to attend to all the cars coming in, um, and, and meeting a lot of people. Is that, do you have time to to have some socialization? Is that part of the role? So it depends on the day, and I think that's kind of what delineates the the attendant role from the management role is that kind of kind of personality. Even if an attendant's in the contact station, I feel like there's almost less of an obligation for them to to connect. But um, when you're at this management position, there's this expectation that you are a presence, you're a face in the park. Um, so I think my big role is connecting with people in the community like you, Brad, and, and, you know, making Kill Care this place not only where you can go and hang out for a day, but that you can make part of your, your staple or your routine or make memorable experiences out of it. And part of that starts with a smile and a how do you do? Yeah, yeah. And, and so um, while I'm not always the one in the contact station, I do instill in all my employees that that desire to make sure that a lot of people here are on vacation or coming on vacation. And no one wants to start their vacation with, you know, someone grumpy who hasn't had their coffee yet. Yeah, for sure. Um, and <laughs> I'm thankful, you know, a lot of my, my regulars, so to speak, are evening walkers. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, most of my attendance, most of my staff is done at four or five o'clock. So that leaves, you know, going back to my full 12 hour day, that leaves me in the office from five to, to eight or, you know, sunset when we close. And sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's busy for the most part. It's a slower day. So I get to meet with people walking through or stopping by and. It's really always awesome to be able to answer questions about the area. And if you approach that with kind of an emphatic excitement, I, I'm passionate about these parks. I think, again, it's a, it's a really cool, neat spot with a lot of history. So to be able to share that and watch people find that appreciation, even if they don't stay, even if they're just turning around, they'll ask questions. And I think leave with a, an appreciation of not just that park, but I think what we do for the park systems overall. Yeah, for sure. And, and you certainly, you and all of your staff have been so welcoming. And I, I'm gathering you've got a whole bunch of regulars that you've gotten to know and they've gotten to know you. And it's just a real friendly atmosphere there for right. sure. And I think Kilcare again is a special park because it's very much ingrained in the St. Albans community. Um, you know, you know, there's other parks I, I keep uh, picking on Underhill, but it's a place where uh, while there's there's camping and obviously that's that's under Mount Mansfield, so you get a lot of of people all throughout the. It's a, it serves an important purpose. It's a very important park, so I'm picking on it, but it it is important. Um, but most of the people that go there aren't necessarily regulars. Everyone hikes Mount Mansfield. It's the tallest and most popular mountain in Vermont, so yeah. they get new people every day and a, a slew of them. So. Um, I think sometimes at other parks, that kind of level of connection is a bit harder just because of volume and purpose of the park. 
So I think one of the big jobs of, of me is recognizing the purpose of my park. Yeah. Do you have responsibilities for, um, I mean, it, you're a bathing park too, right? It's a swimming area. It's sort of a swim at your own risk kind of thing in these parks. Is that true across the state or? Yes and no. So late, lately we've had some struggles with, with, uh, swim testing and of course with the flooding and, and the hot, uh, the hot and cold summer that we've had. It's been crazy weather. Yeah. It affects the water quality. And so we've seen, cyanobacteria blooms. You may know it as blue-green algae, but it's actually not algae at all. It's bacteria. Um, we've had cyanobacteria blooms that have lasted longer than average, and we have this massive uh, water table level uh, that's kind of affected runoff and flows of Lake Champlain. And so we had a period of time where we closed free coli. We do testing. We test every Monday. Um, and, of course, if we see something wrong with the water, we test it then. Um, so... We try not to be the swim at your own risk kind of scenario. Okay. But, um, as soon as we notice something, we catch it. Uh, we either advise that, hey, alert, there's something in the water or there could be something in the water. So be aware or you don't need to swim today. Right. And at the end of the day, we're not law enforcement. They actually don't want us to be park rangers. We're park managers because rangers in association with enforcement. We don't have that. Right. So we can say, Water is not advisable to swim. There's bacteria in it, but at the end of the day, you can do what do what yeah. you want with it. We just strongly advise it as the regulatory body, so to speak. And do you advise it uh, with signs or just sort of ver- verbally? We do both. We try to catch people, uh, especially with full closures. We'll stick out three or four signs by the by the swim beach, and uh, we'll post signs in the contact station. And as people come in, we see you know. Are you swimming? Are you just coming in for the day? And if they say, I want to swim, then we let them know. And of course, we send our data to, um, to our superiors and we, we have, uh, testing that gets done and that gets posted on the park website. And, uh, the cyanobacteria that I mentioned earlier goes to the Lake Champlain cyanobacteria monitoring system. And that is posted. We're talking today with, uh, Tyler Whitley. He is the manager of Kill Care State Park, where you, uh, can go and, um, find, uh, you know, meditatively find your soul and, and, and sit on a park bench, look out on beautiful Lake Champlain and let the worries, uh, of the world, uh, go someplace else. Is that what kill care is about? It's, it's about killing your cares. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is such a relaxing place. It's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of parks can get loud, rowdy, or there's camping. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff, but, um, it's really just a quiet, nice place. Even the busy days still somehow have an air of relaxation to them. Yeah. It was really funny being there yesterday because we had um, out-of-town guests and we all went over there. And I'm not used to all the people around. And there, it was joyous. There were you know, right. people at every bench. And and uh, one thing that I love about the, the state park system and just parks as a whole is it's, it's timeless. Uh, last year when I was working at an attendant, I was at Lake St. Catherine State Park in southern Vermont. And uh, I was working concessions, and there's no signal at Lake St. Catherine. You're not going to be on your cell phone. So I'd sit there selling ice cream, staring out a window, looking at Lake St. Catherine, this beautiful beach, and watching kids and adults play and enjoy life and enjoy nature and enjoy the world around them. And just like we've been doing as long as humans have been humans. And so it's it's a really gratifying experience to... Um, 
be able to have that opportunity to give people that that touch, that flair of of timeless, I guess, love and appreciation for the world around us. Yeah, for sure. Um, you talked a little bit about park passes. There, I mean, it's a modest fee to get in anyway, but there's there are also deals to be had. Absolutely. Um, like I said, of course, once the park season ends, uh, ours ends Labor Day, others are towards October, but, uh, entry is come as you are and, and you can come and go. But during peak season, uh, if you are a, um, you plan on coming to Vermont a lot, uh, then there's a couple options. We have the individual pass, uh, which gets one person in to any state park, uh, the day use for, for free. Uh, and those are $30. So if you go to your park, uh, any park, what is that? Uh, it's even five times, I think, is, or six times. That pays for itself. Uh, the vehicle pass, it's just similar to the individual pass, but gets any vehicle up to eight people in. So if you're someone who likes to bring, bring the kiddos around, uh, that's $90. But again, if you have a family of four and you go you know, even six, seven, eight times, it pays for itself. Uh, and my favorite pass, we were talking about it a bit earlier, the Green Mountain Pass. Um, I know a lot of different states offer something similar, and even the national park level offers something like this. But if you are a, um, a uh, honorably discharged veteran or over the age of 62 and a resident of Vermont, you can go to your town clerk's office, uh, pick up a pass for $2, and you have lifetime access to the state park system. And I think that kind of um, uh, resource to provide people with, again, meaningful outdoor experiences for uh, essentially free is is crucial uh, for getting people outside and for allowing people to, to again, enjoy the world around us. Uh, again, I, I love my park because it's such a part of the community. And um, the Green Mountain Pass is very popular. Uh, St. Albans has, has some... Um, you know, a, a large-ish senior community. And, um, uh, again, I see a lot of familiar faces, and it's at the point where I know who has those passes. And so they drive, they wave, and they come right on through, and I know what buttons to click to let them in. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, if you if you are fit that criteria, um, go to your town clerk. It's 2 bucks, and even if you don't go to the parks very often, it'll, it'll save you some time and energy and, and money, and it just opens up a whole new resource to you. We really, we have a great park system and I, I've mentioned in the past on this show that I, uh, hike Mount Elmore every full moon for the last couple of years. I go up at night and I watch the moon rise over Elmore, um, from the fire tower. And sometimes I'm coming down late at night, uh, with the headlamp, of course, and, um, I just love it. I love the fact that we have these beautiful parks and, and we can do that sort of after hours in, you know, in many respects. And it's just great. Right. Elmore is also a beautiful park. If you haven't gone, they have a, 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 a really cool fire tower. I think it's what, a 60 to 80 foot fire tower. On yeah. 3000 foot mountain. Yeah. Um, when I went, it was a bit blustery. So, uh, I was a bit worried about blowing over. Obviously it hasn't gone anywhere in a while. Um, but I think the park systems offer a lot of um, recreational opportunities and beautiful ways for you to experience the world around you in different ways, whether you're uh, a swimmer, a hiker, um, a runner, a biker, um, or just a general recreationalist or, or camper. Even within camping, I know there's parks that are very RV heavy. So if you like glamping or, or you got a big family or you want to camp for weeks on end, 
there's options. If you're a backpacker or a wilderness hiker or even just, you know, uh, someone who likes to rough it, there's options. And um, I haven't traveled as much as I'd like, but based on what I've seen, Vermont State Parks is it's pretty up there. It's it's pretty well regarded within park systems for the resources and opportunities we provide. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned COVID earlier um, with with uh, Chief Murad, how that changed a lot of things. <clears throat> Excuse me, but the state parks suddenly became the most popular place in the world because people couldn't be at their offices. They were out on the road, and it was absolutely remarkable. Uh, so really a great asset to Vermont. Certainly. And I think, um, yeah, COVID did a lot of kind of recognizing, uh, helping people recognize the importance of these outdoor resources and these um, undeveloped areas or at least manicured areas where people can can relax outside of the workplace. And we saw actually, from my understanding, uh, 2022 was one of the biggest, busiest park years on record once all the COVID restrictions were lifted and people were able to fully camp and, and do everything that they, uh, that they would like to do in the parks. And, um, to, to, I, I saw myself even back, uh, back in North Carolina, saw myself yearning to go outside, which was something that I wasn't all that familiar with at the time. Yeah. So we're talking with Tyler Whitley. He's the manager of Kilcare State Park. Now, if you if you say Tyler Whitley, that's a good name. And if you say Tyler Austin Whitley, that's that's really a good name. But if you say Tyler Austin Whitley <laughs> with a bit of a southern accent, I think that is just an amazing name and could be a book character and a bestseller. Well, maybe I should get writing them. <laughs> yeah, I, I I grew up here in Tyler. Come on now, Tyler. <laughs> Heard that a lot, and it's a, a bit different up here. You know. Were you in trouble when it was Tyler Austin Whitley? You I, get in here right now. <laughs> Tyler Austin Whitley was what I heard when it was trouble. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, it depends on what side of the family and, and how deep you go that the southern accent really comes out. I've been told I don't have much of one, but, again, it, once I go back home, depending on who I'm around, then I, it comes out a little bit, and it starts to, the southern drawl just comes naturally, I suppose. But um, it's really only in my grandparents that that you start hearing it a lot. My grandma, I, I love her to death, but she is your quintessential southern grandma. She'll feed you till you want to explode and kill her with kindness kind of lady. So Some lemonade on the porch. Yep, absolutely. Gardening all the time with her sun hat, this, that, and the other. Um, so so you're in central central uh, North Carolina and uh, grew up there. Uh, what was that like? Um, so it was it was an awesome place to grow up. Uh, I had uh, a lot of experiences. I grew up uh, kind of in the uh, suburban runoff of Charlotte, not quite in in the city, but I could drive 30 minutes to downtown. And um, just the kind of socioeconomic backgrounds there were were so diverse and varied that. Uh, I got to see a lot of different experiences. So growing up, um, I got to meet people of, of all sorts of ethnicities and backgrounds and kind of learn you know, differences and appreciations for all walks of life. I ended up uh, going to this wonderful magnet school uh, in high school where uh, I was able to specialize in theater, which was something I was very passionate about. And so I, I walked away feeling very trained. I went to college on the coast at East Carolina University for 
uh, uh, theater. Uh, I went for theater for youth and uh, theater education. Uh, one day, my high school theater director just looked at me and said, hey, have you ever considered teaching? And I went, huh, no, I haven't. Let me give it a go. And so I went to school for that on the coast. It took me five years. I had a good old victory lap. <laughs> um, but then I found myself uh, teaching in the largest school in the capital um, right out of college. And that was definitely a, a challenging experience, especially that was I started in 2019. And, you know, my my I taught technical theater, which for those who who might not know that that world um, that's not the acting stuff. It's the lighting. It's the sound. It's it's the uh, stage. It's it's everything that isn't the acting. Costumes, makeup, all that stuff that needs to make a production a production. Um, which is a really cool kind of niche program that not every school has. Um, and I know that North Carolina, it's it's a big state. It's, it's approaching, if not at, 10 million people already. So. Again, I was at the biggest school. There were 2,800 kids when I left. Um, I would have classes of about 30, 35, which doesn't sound like too much to maybe an English class or something like that. But I was teaching power tools. I was teaching painting. I had a small little booth with our, our lighting and sound equipment that had like $12,000 worth of, of equipment. And how do you squeeze 30 kids in there to teach them all the same thing? Um, so there was a lot of challenge with that, but just kind of talking about North Carolina as a whole, there was a lot of um, things to do. Um, but what I found, especially where I was living when I was teaching, it was uh, in Cary, North Carolina, um, just outside of Raleigh, was that it was very, it was a suburban area. Again, it was the runoff of the capital. And so everything was, was commercialized is what it felt like. There there was there were a couple parks, uh, but they were about a 20-minute highway drive away and very populated um and it was all paved you know you, you wouldn't be hiking per se you would be walking on a paved road and while that was kind of a byproduct of the area i was in north carolina does have wonderful park opportunities especially towards the coast and especially in the mountainous regions uh towards the appalachians um i just wasn't in that spot uh, so through just the kind of stress of, of teaching and feeling overwhelmed by the, the commercialization of things, well, everything was in front of me. I had could go to any restaurant I want, buy anything I want. Um, especially during COVID, I learned that that didn't quite fulfill me in any meaningful way. And while the act of teaching uh, uh, did, uh, the kicker was I wasn't just a teacher. It wasn't that I got to have my three classes at the end of the day and go home it was the teaching. It was I was a technical director, which going back to those who may not know, I was in charge of all that lighting, sound, all that stuff um, for every single production this school of 2,800 kids had, which you can imagine is a lot. We'd have a musical, uh, four or five plays, uh, band concerts, any sort of anything in that theater. I was not only the director of or the technical director of, but also the facility manager. So especially towards the end of the year, uh, you would have uh, a production or some sort of event in that space um, almost every single day. Um, so I would easily push 70, 80-hour weeks, which you know it, it put a strain on, on me, especially as a young professional who hopped right into it after college. I didn't feel like I had the equipment for that. I started having some pains in my chest and my heart towards the end, and that was when I said, I don't, I don't know if I can do this mm. anymore. 
and then hence uh, – this place called Vermont. So it, kind of a, it, it was uh, a long time coming in the sense of um, Anna, uh, who is my uh, wonderful partner. Um, her and I, during COVID, were looking for something to do, somewhere to go, because we had not taken a vacation. And while it's a you know, shame for, for coming to Vermont during COVID, I, uh, we, we did all the testing. We, we, we tried to follow everything to the T. Uh, we went to... Um, we went to Woodstock, Vermont in the winter of 2020 for New Year's, and I fell in love. We stayed at a, uh, an Airbnb on a guy's property. It was a cabin that he built with his grandfather, and we were right next to this beautiful rushing you know, brook from, from the mountain, and I had never tasted better water. I had never tasted better food. Uh, I wasn't in a snowy part of North Carolina, so snow was <laughs> mind-boggling. And people are going, you know, I know people are going to talk to me. I've already heard it. Like, you like the snow? You're, you're going to change your mind on that. But, you know, I'm, I'm always looking forward to more snow. And, um, you know, it was just one of those things where we stayed for a week and everything we did, everything we saw just kind of had this magical touch to it because I went from this place where it was blocks and blocks and blocks of people and concrete and people and concrete and business and money and business and money to a beautiful atmosphere with sweeping roads and farms and, and streams and brooks and mountains and this whole world kind of opened up to me. And again, I know there's places like this all over the place, but that kind of, you know, you hear people talk about Vermonters and that fierce independence and you know, the, the kind of go your own way, do what you do, uh, that, that philosophy really stuck with me. Um, I was kind of getting over the whole Southern hospitality thing mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not necessarily a keep to myself kind of guy, but I enjoy having my space. I talk to people and engage when I want to and when they want to. And, you know, just interacting with the people of Vermont, the, that kind of attitude really resonated with me. So after that week, we went back home, and I hadn't considered quitting teaching at that point, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. Mm. And in fact, uh, um, my screensaver for my phone has been a picture that I took on that trip since then. So it's been almost three years, and it's still the same picture because it was such a formative experience. Um, and all that came because um, Anna, my girlfriend, said, you know, I used to live there. Let's Let's check it out. I haven't been since I was a kid. Let's go. And so, so we did, and I fell in love. And when we were considering quitting teaching and and just the environment that we were in, while we knew we were going to miss friends, family, all that stuff, we weren't happy. And so we had to do something. And I hadn't seen much of the world. I've traveled up and down the East Coast a bit, but I've always lived in North Carolina. So you know, we visited Vermont. I fell in love with Vermont. I was tired of the heat. Um, like I said, I love the winter, so this was, it just, it clicked and it made sense. So, um, coincidentally, Anna's mom, uh, got a job in the park systems before we did. And she came back up here and worked as a park interpreter at the same park that we later became attendance at at Lake St. Catherine. So we kind of all packed our stuff up and, and moved and it was nerve wracking. That was my first big move. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff left behind, a lot of, scrambling, um, especially because we were, we were moving from, you know, a decent sized one bedroom apartment and in, in a city where everything was kind of around us to 
to a state park next to Pulteney, Vermont, where there was only 4,000 people in the entire town. Uh, we had this little cabin that was connected to two other cabins, and we had an upstairs bedroom, a downstairs little living room, and that was that was about it. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a fresh start. But um, when I quit teaching, I told my kids, you know, it was it was heartbreaking because that's the one thing that I miss is being able to make those meaningful connections and and help students find themselves and find opportunities in uh, places that they never thought they would through you know carpentry, this, that, and the other technology. Um, but I said. I want to have a rotary phone in a cabin in the woods. (laughs) And the rotary phone hasn't happened yet. I I can't quite get rid of the cell phone. But um, I I ended up first thing in a cabin in the woods. And so I got to tell my kids I did it. I made it. Yeah. You got a Henry David Thoreau kind of thing going. Absolutely. (laughs) And, and again, that kind of uh, self-reliance and self-sufficiency is is something that that draws me. I think a lot of Vermonters are are very much – able to take care of themselves. And, you know, everyone is here to lend a hand. It's a help thy neighbor environment, especially in St. Albans. I've really been drawn to the St. Albans community. Um, but uh, I, I know it's always the tricky coming in as a, a flatlander, I'll, I'll go ahead and say. But um, I have only felt welcomed in Vermont. And I think it's because I've, I've come in with the mentality that I think a lot of other Vermonters have and share. Well, my observation is that um, people who have come here from out of state have added this great value socially, intellectually, educationally. It's it's just been you know it's it's been wonderful for Vermont. We've we've got enough we got enough acres here. We we can. Uh, we're, we need a Statue of Liberty, maybe. To, exactly. <laughs> that's a little. That's welcoming. Um, I will say that um, I'm. I'm with you. We, my daughter and I. We love the cold, hard winter. We love. It's beautiful at Kilcare in the winter. Um, the sun rises, sunsets. Everything is is dramatically great. Your depiction of Vermont. Thank you very much for that. You know, um, you could be the spokesperson for. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce of Vermont, you know, uh, what's your, um, we have about a minute left, but what's your one more, uh, calling to people your age to come to Vermont? Make it work. Make it work. If you love this place, just find a way to make it work. I think housing with homelessness, which is something you were talking about with the chief of police is, is hard, but, um, there's, there's opportunities. Parks provide housing. Look around, see what you can do, and just make it work. Sounds great. We've been talking with Tyler Austin Whitley of North Carolina, who's now a full-fledged Vermonter. He's working at uh, Camp Kilcare in St. Albans. He's managing Camp Kilcare. Beautiful park. Uh, his efforts have been noticeable. The place looks great. Best, best I've seen it in years. Uh, this is Brad Furlan. We're on uh, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV coming up, Bill Sayre, and uh, Charlie Papillo at 1 o'clock with Travels with Charlie. Uh, Tyler, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you, Brad, and thank you, uh, WDEV, for having me. It's been wonderful.